This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, we do get an opportunity to talk cross-country skiing as Mike Arsenal, former London major, guy who has been no stranger to this area, gives fitness served cold to us. Mike, you've been putting in some hours outside for this, and this winter, uh, you've kind of been able to avoid the minus 20s and minus 30s. Well, that's, that's a good point. So Fitness Served Cold is the title of the series. I might have to change it to Fitness Served Above Seasonal because that really has been the pattern so far this winter. At the same time, it was perfect for fat biking, which we talked about last week. And it's never bad to go for a nice cross-country ski because you can figure out the wax. I guess, well, that's the hard part. you got to figure out the wax. But you gave a shot at cross-country skiing, which probably 30, 40 years ago, it was one of those things that people just did. Everybody owned cross-country skis what are you finding now in terms of that sport well where i was it was at the horseshoe resort so in i mean you can you can do fat biking or cross-country skiing really across anywhere in, in southern southwestern ontario but uh, it seems like fat biking is kind of not overtaking but it's definitely another option for people who may not want to do downhill skiing and aren't uh, that interested in doing cross-country skiing because i'll be honest with you i have i mean i was a downhill skier my entire life so i thought my downhill skiing skills would translate a lot better than they actually did, but cross-country skiing is an entirely different animal. But I think we can all agree, Mike, that kind of trudging through the snow in boots isn't that fun. So you want to kind of convey yourself across the snow, whether it being fat biking or cross-country skiing. But the learning curve was much steeper than I envisioned. So there are a couple of types of cross-country skiing. There's that classic one with the boots that almost look like duck feet, and you, you slip them in, or you've got more streamlined stuff these days when you look at some of the racing skis and, and learning how to skate. So where did they plunk you down? Well, I think I was felled by hubris because I had the opportunity to pick either classic or skate style. And that's what you're describing uh, uh, first was the classic style. And you just kind of go back and forth, front to back motion. It's more like running on skis. They said that's the easier one, a little bit more difficult is skate style. When I was a hockey player growing up, I'm like, oh, I should be able to handle that. No problem. But it's a lot more technique oriented to do the skate style. And I really, I really struggled. I mean, I, I, I fell on my backside within the first three seconds of getting on the skis. And the other issue was, is you would think that the skate style is very similar to skating, which it is, but it's just it, it's, a, it's a weird feeling to kind of have to stay on the bottom of the ski. You don't want to go on your edges like you would on downhill skiing, because if you do that, you're going to just continually to fall over and over. <laughs> so everything you learned downhill skiing, you had to throw out the window. Was there anything similar other than you were on two devices that kind of propelled through the snow and, and were nice and flat on one side? Well, once I was able to, to kind of use the poles, that made it a lot easier because originally I was being instructed to just kind of learn skate style with just my legs. And whatever reason, the message from my legs and my skis was not getting to my brain <laughs> whatsoever. But once I could kind of uh, use the ski poles, then it was a little more reminiscent to, I mean, when you go downhill skiing, at some point you might have to kind of do a flat portion to either get back to the chairlift or get to another run. So it was a, a somewhat reminiscent of that once I was able to use the poles. But the biggest thing, 
running. I mean, fat biking is definitely more of a, a leisurely activity. You can make it a lot tougher. There's no way to make cross-country skiing easy. My core, my forearms were absolutely gassed in the cardiovascular demands of cross-country skiing, especially skate style. You cannot be in bad shape and be a cross-country skier, I'll tell you that, Mike. <laughs> Mike Carsonell joining us as we've sent him out into the cold for Global News to investigate staying fit, getting active, and trying some of the old winter sports. And this week, it has been cross-country skiing. So in terms of the learning curve, after a while, did you start to kind of get things where you would say, you know, if I came back here once a week, then, uh, you know, this could become as much as it is a cardiovascular activity. It could become maybe a, an easier activity, one that, that you could do more often. Definitely. Like, I mean, I'm trying to cram uh, like a, this learning curve into an hour-long lesson because we have to kind of shoot all the footage and I kind of have to think of how, how the story is going to look. So I have a lot of other things on my mind. If I was just kind of there cross-country skiing, that would be different. But yeah, after, after about an hour, I, I, was, I was manageable. I was able to kind of maneuver myself down and across the trails. It didn't look pretty, but I was able to get the job done. And yeah, so I mean, if, if you just spend a little time, don't go in with the expectation if you've never done it before that, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an expert, no problem. But you can can definitely with with uh, an hour or so of training and just some practice you'll be able to get out and enjoy now uphill portions you may want to avoid that on your first try and just keep it uh, as easy as possible but also you don't need to buy cross-country skis there's uh, many facilities again across southern Ontario where you can try it and then the most important thing Mike again is we want to make the best of winter right so you don't want to just kind of stay indoors and just wait for the nicer weather make the best of what the cold season has to offer and get out there and enjoy nature and, and get your blood pumping and that uh, will do wonders for both your physical health and also your mental health as well. You can check it out at globalnews.ca. Mike, thanks for the time on this. What is coming up next? Uh, next week, so the first two episodes have been uh, horizontal motion. Now we're going to get vertical. I try ice climbing. Ice climbing? Yes. Man, okay. I, I, be safe, all right? That, that sounds less safe than, uh, than most things you could possibly do. Well, I'm going to have two axes in my hands and uh, spikes on my feet. So, of course yeah, you safety are. Safety will be paramount for sure. All right, Mike, we'll talk again. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. Mike Arsenault, who has faced pitches at 90 miles an hour, doesn't phase him, now is going to be ice climbing. I hope we have enough ice. to talk about something coming to London Public Library tomorrow because our next guest is going to be there. He is Dave, and that's what we will call him from this point on because he likes to remain fairly anonymous uh, simply because of what he does. Dave is from Freaktography.com. You can check out that website, and we had a chance to chat with him and talk about what he does. He takes pictures of places that maybe you don't really think need to have pictures taken. They're things that are buildings that are maybe abandoned, or he'll go into spots. In other words, he's going into spots where he maybe isn't technically allowed to go, but he's getting these amazing pictures. So we spoke with him and talked to him about the fact that there really aren't a lot of hours out of the day where Dave doesn't have a camera in his hands. Yeah, I get out quite often. I've been lucky. Um, I'd have to say, you know, I try to get out every other weekend or a couple times a month. It's uh, it's kind of like a form of therapy. It gets me away, you know, life, work, all that kind of stuff gets to you. 
going out and uh, what I call uh, recreational trespassing seems to be my escape from all that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've painted an interesting picture with that phrase, recreational trespassing. Let's get your <laughs> definition then of what recreational trespassing is. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun term. Uh, so it's, it's called urban exploration or urban exploring. Some people shorten it to urbex. The kids these days are calling it urbex. Anyways, it is the exploration of um, any structure or facility that is off limits and unseen. That so, doesn't, yeah, that doesn't sound as bad now. All of a sudden, recreational trespassing—you throw in the word <laughs> trespassing—and now you think, well, wait a minute, no, 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 it's there. It's kind of like the the old song "Signs," where you know you hop the fence and you get in trouble for hopping the fence, but it was it was kind of a space that wasn't being used anyway. That's exactly right, and. I mean, it, I, I kind of justify it, not only myself, but others. It's justified by, I'm not there to do any harm or to do any damage. And, you know, some people always ask me, how many, have you been caught? What happens? Typically, when you're caught trespassing, when you're caught by a property owner, they immediately have their guard up and they instantly want, they're mad, right? But when they find out that you're just there curious and you're taking photos, I'd say nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, they back down, they're okay. Sometimes they say you can stay, but most of the time they still ask you to leave. <laughs> we are talking with Dave from Freaktography.com. So what even gave you kind of your first experience where you thought, wow, I, I might have something here. This is, this is really cool. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was around March 2012, and this old friend of mine, was telling me about this really creepy old house in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And everybody knows Niagara-on-the-Lake. It's a beautiful city, beautiful town. And the houses are very nice. But there's this one road where every house is beautiful, manicured. And then on a corner, there's this one dumpy, boarded-up house. And there's a hundred different stories about why this house looks like this. And the most popular one is that there was some sort of paranormal activity that happened in this house that caused the family to pack up their gear and leave. And nobody has ever lived there since. And to this day, that house is still there. Long story short, the, that story really got me interested. And I started looking it up. And I found that there's this whole group of people on the Internet that go into abandoned buildings and they take photos. And I had a nice camera. I didn't know anything about it. And it just gave me something to do. I needed a hobby. I started riding, driving the back roads of uh, Milton, Burlington, Oakville, London quite often. And... It just turned into something that I really enjoy, and it turns out that there's a lot of people out there that are fascinated by this kind of stuff. Well, we're going to find out more. A tour de freak at the London Public Library comes up. I'm going to say tomorrow right now. I'll edit this because we're going to run this on Friday for you. Right, um, right. So I'll do, if I'm saying tomorrow, don't think, what is this guy talking about? So, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, we're going to find out more. Tour de freak comes to the London Public Library tomorrow from 2 until 4. And again, that's downtown. And you can take a look at everything that Dave is talking about. Now, even before... You take us on the back road tour of things. Take us back to that house that first time. Was that one of the first places or the first place that you did this? You went in there? <laughs> the funny thing is I've never been in this house. <laughs> I've been to the house, and the, the house is so boarded up, and it's got neighbors on both sides, and you can't get in unless you're interested in bringing a crowbar and, and breaking it in, which I'm not interested in doing that. Uh, I've tried to reach out to real estate agents to get access to the house, but I can't get anybody to write back or answer me. 
And I'm sure one of these days I will get in this house, but I've actually never been in the one home that got me started. Isn't that amazing? So did, did you still go with your camera and capture photographs of the house? I did. I took pictures of the outside of the house, and I tried peeking my, my eyes through little holes in the wood and the, uh, the boards on the window, but um, I couldn't get myself inside, unfortunately. And is it still a goal to one day get in there? It is. I actually tried reaching out to a, a real estate agent about a month ago, but I haven't heard back yet. <laughs> well, good luck with that. But at the same Thank time, you. that kind of sets you off. So where did you go next where you actually did get inside? Because some of your pictures are amazing. You look at the, well, all of your pictures are amazing, but you look at the, the way that you capture ceilings or the way that you capture views from inside these buildings. Well, I will tell you, my, my very first abandoned houses were uh, in between Burlington and Milton. I live in Burlington, Ontario. And the very first houses that I got into were uh, on Tremaine Road in Burlington. And my very, very first time entering an abandoned house, my heart was pounding. I was terrified I was going to get caught. And don't I hear the sound of what sounds like a dog coming in and running through the house? I froze. The hairs stood up on my on my arms. It turns out it was a raccoon. <laughs> no. <laughs> trying to get out of the trying to get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but I will I will say my I mean, this was back in 2012, and my, my early stuff is was absolute gar- garbage. When you know you you have to start somewhere though, and uh, the stuff that you see more recently from me the last few years, I'm a bit more proud of my more recent work, not so much my early stuff. But it's I couldn't get to where I think I am now without that early stuff in those early days. Okay, before we move on again, I'm I'm sorry to take you back, but you got to take us back to the raccoon. You're frozen, the hair's standing up on the back of your neck. You hear this thing, and then did a raccoon actually appear in front of you? Well, I was upstairs, and I heard something running through the house, and then I heard a door close. So <laughs> it, it was a raccoon that knew I was in the house. It took off, and it bashed his head into the door to get himself out of the house. Uh, but I thought it was a dog and a homeowner coming in, and I thought a dog was going to come charging at me up the stairs. <laughs> Dave from Freaktography.com joining us. Check out the website so you can see what we mean. You can add pictures to what we're talking about. But Tour de Freak comes to London, Ontario this weekend. It will be at the London Public Library tomorrow from 2 until 4. You talk about your first pictures being garbage, which I'm sure they're not. But how how did you know? Okay, I'm I've got something here, but it needs to be honed. It needs to be better. What what was it that you saw that wasn't what it needed to be? Well, I was following a lot of others in this hobby that do that that do this sort of thing. People that have been doing it for a lot longer than I had been at the time, and you you know you sort of see there's a benchmark of a type of photograph. For one thing, they're not crooked, <laughs> right? <laughs> First of all, you got to stop turning your camera to the left and you take a photo. Um, you know, there's certain things in photography that you want to look for. They call it the rule of thirds or the golden ratio or different ways of composing a photograph, things I knew nothing about when I first started. And it's all trial and error. And it's, you know, the negative feedback that you get from people is actually, in my opinion, what makes you better. And, you know, you can have all the people in the world telling you that's a great shot, but the person with the right eye to give you that feedback, if you know what, you should have done this differently, whether they put it nicely or not, it's the bad feedback and the negative uh, feedback of your work, in my opinion, that makes you improve as a photographer. Right. And how much training had you had? You mentioned you had a good camera. How much training had you had before you got into this? I'm 100% self-taught. That's amazing. Yeah, I knew nothing. I had, a, I had, an, old, I had an old Nikon camera. I didn't know how to use it. 
and I just taught myself on that camera. And I've now I'm three cameras into the hobby now. I'm now shooting with a pretty good camera. I'm getting into videos. I've just got a drone. I've got a YouTube channel. So I'm trying to expand. Um, you know, I do this for myself. But at the same time, like I said, there's a lot of people out there that are fascinated by this stuff. So I'm trying to bring people a multimedia approach to this stuff where I've bought a 360-degree camera where I can take a photo in a room and the viewer can use their mouse or a finger to move around the whole room, up and down, left and right. Um, I do videos for my YouTube channel where people can actually explore along with me. I've just bought a drone so I can get drone footage of different locations. And I'm just trying to bring it in as many different forms of media as I can. Gotcha. Now, as a final question, have there been any other moments where you've walked in and thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's going wrong here, like the dog and the raccoon? Or have you kind of (laughs) mastered that aspect of this too? Well, there's been times when you're inside, let's say, an abandoned hospital, and there's a security guard who's in the hospital, and you have to try and avoid that security guard. And that happened to me at the London Psychiatric Hospital a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'll get to that in a minute about more of these London locations that I'm going to be bringing to the presentation. But yeah, London Psychiatric Hospital has a 24-hour security guard. And when I, when I explored this building uh, on a number of occasions, you just have to avoid that front main entrance because <laughs> that's where they hang out. Um, there has been times where, uh, there have been other animals, uh, in the buildings I've been in, or, uh, let's see, my, my biggest fear is probably a, a porcupine. Ooh, yeah. I, I would hate, I would hate to startle a porcupine, but that hasn't happened to me yet. Cause there's a lot um, of darkness where you're going. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well then in closing, tell us what you are showing off in terms of what we have here as hidden gems in London to look at. Yeah, so my presentation, it's a two-hour uh, introduction into what it is that I do, how I got into it, and I tell some of my more uh, well-received and popular stories. But I always customize my presentation to the city that I'm in. And I will tell you, London has been so good to me over the years in terms of abandoned buildings. Um, there, there's, there's lots of them out there that are known by everybody. There's the McCormick's Candy Factory. Everybody's been there. Um, I've been there a number of times. There's been a lot of houses abandoned in London the London uh, Psychiatric Hospital, and the old asylum on the property. I've been there a number of times. Um, So I'm going to bring you guys uh, a very, very good assortment of abandoned buildings that I've seen in London that everybody can probably relate to, maybe they've been to, and hope to God somebody doesn't own one of the buildings that I've been in. (laughs) That's outstanding. Well, Dave, we really appreciate you sharing some time with us. Can't wait to see you here. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, man. I'll see you guys on Saturday. Dave from Freaktography.com. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.